0: welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I'm Joel and today on the podcast we're going to be joined by Zach Stein. Uh, Zach is a brilliant thinker and theorist, someone that I've really appreciated learning from, uh, discovering their work over the last years. And so today we're going to be talking about The time between worlds, as Zach calls it, and how we cannot not be changed by the world right now. Zach's going to bring in this frame of the pre-tragic, the tragic, and the post-tragic, and how that's a useful frame to orient ourselves in the world right now. And we're also going to explore Zach's metapsychology and the implications of all of this on our work as coaches. Zach is a writer, an educator, and a futurist whose work focuses on social justice and education through the lenses of developmental psychology and integral meta-theories. He's written the book Education in a Time Between Worlds, which I highly recommend. And he is the academic director of the activist think tank at the Center for Integral Wisdom, as well as a core faculty member at the Meridian University. So let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Zach Stein. All right, Zach, good to be with you today. And uh, I'm really excited to see what we explore. And um, the, the topic I want to explore with you today is, you know, what do you feel is the necessary transformational work of our times? I think a lot of our audience listeners will be coaches, people interested in doing transformative work and on their own transformative journey. And it feels, you know, you've written about this time between worlds and I think many of the the axioms or principles we've, we've held about what transformational work could be or what the purpose of that is for and the worldview it's held within, I think are potentially up for grabs at the moment and to be questioned. And so uh, that's what I'd like to do today is you know kind of like zoom in and zoom out and um, and see where it takes. And so I guess I'd just begin with i mean we'll we'll talk about death today, we'll talk about collapse, we'll talk about insolvent. And but I' will begin with this question of, you know if you if I was just to ask you what do you think the call is in our times, you know, what kind of transformational work are we being invited into? what would you just say off the bat? Hmm. It's hard to say, you know, it's a complex question
1: because it, it assumes a lot of things, right? Like it assumes the, that transformational work must be done or will be done, right? right. Um, firstly. So there's also this question of like, is that question the right frame? Should we be thinking about the global situation in terms of our own, Personal transformation. It's the first question. Um, like, who are we to think? <laughs> like, that's the way to view it. And then the other question that's kind of built into that question is the nature of these times. Like, what? what does? What, what? are the times? And as I've said, uh, the the notion of a time between worlds um, suggests that there's no way to avoid transformation. So there's this question of like, is personal transformation the right frame? And then there's this other question built into your question of what what is, how do we characterize the times? What are the times? And I've spoken of it being in a time between worlds. And if we take that frame of a time between worlds, then you can't not transform, right? That, the, that built into the epoch itself is a kind of inexorable, ubiquitous, unworlding constant transformation constant change um so in that sense that's why the question seemed almost not like it was like it was jarring to me because i understand the times is so so ungrounded so churning us through different identities and different challenges um, that one doesn't need to go out of one's way (laughs) to transform right and so it's kind of like that notion of like a transformative practice is almost from a time, uh, from a time when we had a world and when the world would lock us in place, uh, and when we'd have to somehow work against the inertia of the world to transform ourselves to then transform the world, <laughs> right? But in fact, we're in a situation where the world is constantly knocking us off balance and constantly demanding that we transform because it is transforming. Uh, like it is under a complex crisis of systemic distress and reconfiguration can't stay what it is and so that means that it's not so much that we're called to like work against the inertia of the world and and become a change agent it's like we are always already change agents right now (laughs) because the whole system is in so much flux Um, so it's kind of a reconceptualization where it's about um, looking at the world as a as a flow with a telos, right, with a direction. That when the world comes apart, it has there has to be a reworlding, right, or the end of everything. That's one option, <laughs> which we can talk about existential risk. But otherwise, the thing has to come back together somehow. Uh, and so there's a pull of the future. Uh, and uh, so in one sense, we're called to not make this about our transformation and actually make this about the transformation of the world that we are called to participate in. Uh, Feel into the call of that future, uh, which is also a future self, the self, yourself from the future, (laughs) Uh, which is different than the one self of pure consciousness, let's say state experience, enlightenment, capital E, self, right? self from the future is more like a unique self that draws you into a particular niche in the telos of the future right so there's a feeling and a perceiving that's necessary and it's a feeling and perceiving with like an eye of value with an eye that detects what is what is a value and how one can bring one's own value to that Uh, so this is now getting quite abstract (laughs) And a little yeah. bit, uh, I'm misbehaving a little bit because I'm not answering your question. I'm saying actually, the question is actually different than what you're asking. You know,
0: it's exactly why we're in this conversation. So I really appreciate it. And perhaps like the the latter part of what you're talking about now, I you know I get the sense of installment in a sense. You know, something calling us forward into our uniqueness. But I want to I want to kind of just come back because there's so much in what you said there, and I, I appreciate that you actually kind of refuted the question in some way um and so like if i just you know kind of try to make sense of what you're saying it's like i hear that actually the question itself uh proposes that that there's a a self that can you know um kind of enact its own transformation in a world and, and through some kind of effort and will but actually you know, like if we look right, like right now, life is growing us. Yeah, like there's so much change and disturbance happening that, that that life is growing us, and and that we want to question, in some sense, that whole paradigm of like individual self actualization in some way, or what might be some of the things we're holding inside of that. But there, there, there's an emphasis you're making on the on the collective, and. And if you could say a bit more about what I'm saying now, like to, to flesh it out a bit more. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so that was the kind of the first
1: moment of that, of the arc of what I said had concerned you know, the primacy of individual trans self-transformation. Uh that was like posed by the question. It, it wasn't that I rejected the question. It was like there's questions within the question, actually, many questions within right. the question. One of them concerns this, like, is it is this the place to start when we're asking questions about our situation? We start with our concern about our own self-transformation. And and what's interesting is that is kind of like part of some of the ideology of modernity, which is some of the ideology that's coming unwound, right? Which is this abstract individualism. Uh, And of course, I'm not saying you're saying that, nor your listeners. Would they be naively kind of modernist and abstract individualist, like win-lose metric, kind of like you know thing most people know that personal transformation involves a, a, a kind of a broader social field of relationship and often it's a changing relationship that one can actually transform but still it's posed as individual transformation you know and it's sort of the kind of like protestant distillation of the pre-modern communal and kind of guild system turns into the capitalist, modern form of individualism, where you're responsible for your, <laughs> uh, absence or presence of success. And that's a sign of sin or grace. Um, and so the abstract individual then becomes even legally separated from everything else. And it's kind of your responsibility to you have, you know, gained this much wealth or not. And those are those kinds of models. Um, and so really it's hard to get out from that model of the self and it had dignities as compared to, let's say, pre-modern or pre modern you know, versions of self so far as we can understand them, right? Like there's a reason that we wanted to valorize the individual over above the fiat dictates of the feudal Lord <laughs> and try to move towards a form of open society. Um, yet at the same time, there was a, fabric of social connection that was clearly kind of broken as modernity began to institutionalize this abstract individualism and legal codes and, you know, tax codes and forms of schooling and forms of family, things of that nature. Um, And so one of the things that the world's doing now as it transforms, you know, the anima mundi, right? The soul of the world is what we're caught up in, which is transforming. It's It's growing us it's calling us with its implicit telos and one of the things that's unraveling is that kind of modern slash postmodern story of the abstract individual Um, and so that was a little bit what was in my questioning of your question it was about um, what's the right unit of analysis here and and it's not to abnegate individual responsibility. It's not to say that. It's not to say one shouldn't be concerned about one's choices, you know, and responsibilities and obligations. It's not to say that, but it is to say that there are there's more in heaven and earth than is trapped up in our personal philosophy of self-transformation. <laughs> and so you make plans about your own self-transformation, and God laughs at those plans and says there's other things that are actually in store for you. Um, Uh, So in this case, we don't have to arrange for ourselves to go through initiation processes that, you know, shatter us and allow us to reconstitute ourselves. Like the world is constantly offering us that kind of initiation because we're in a time between worlds. Again, when the world is clear (laughs) and, you know, it's easy to pass on value and sense-making from generation to generation, then you do need to sometimes disrupt, find ways to, get initiation to get yourself out of the stuckness of the world and perhaps some people are still sheltered enough where there is a kind of stuckness and inertia but my sense is yeah we don't need to be arranging for initiation we need to learn how to react to the initiation that the world is giving us which precisely because we can't control it sometimes we don't want to even see as initiation that oh this is the test and uh And so that gets into perhaps one general thing that could be said is has to do with the post tragic, right? The the reconfigure the reconfiguration of identity in relationship to tragedy that allows you to not spiritually bypass tragedy or theorize your way out of tragedy, but to live in tragedy uh, with a different form of consciousness or
0: self-awareness and, so you know, uh, yeah, so I kind of I'll leave it there. Well, because I'd like to talk about tragic this this topic, but I think just to reflect on what you said, I know in my own life and it seems that we're we're like hitting up against the, the limits or we we've, we've been hitting up against the limits of that overemphasis on the individuated self, you know the like I just noticed in my own life over the last couple of years how, Certain mode of being, like you know, my relationship to um perhaps that 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 kind of sense of self which is fully integrated and empowered and you know, perhaps in control of life in certain ways, able to orchestrate things that are happening in life, and how perhaps that that actually never really um existed in the way I thought it did, but um, with the events happening around the world, it certainly seems a fallacy and that there is a kind of background sense of swimming in in a certain level of of initiation and and tragedy and and chaos, which is disturbing and confronting. And, and so, um, and I think, you know, in the coaching field, like maybe a lot of coaching has been oriented around the actualization of oneself, the perfection of oneself into some idealized, place, you know, where one will become powerful and successful. And so um and and yet like what I'm curious about, and maybe this is where we go into the post-tragic world is like certainly seems like there's a necessity now on a collective level for 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 you know people to be in the kinds of relationships where we're able to to I don't know what the word would be like to to not to process but to to be um and again, maybe the word trans- transformed is not the right word, but to to move through this together, you know, that relationship, and this is where coach- coaching can come in. That people can be in the kind of relationship where we can meet the tragic, and we can m- meet our own sense of of death, and and in so be, be something new can begin to come in, you know, and so. Yeah, I think that's why I'm interested in speaking with you today is because perhaps there's a new kind of conversation on a on a you know a very like personal level that that's that's necessary or that, that can be supportive.
1: Yeah, I mean I agree. It's it's not it's not the case that the the work that one can do to kind of like build and strengthen identity and character, and especially to kind of organize. Uh, your relation to life and to social conflict and things like that that's that's necessary <laughs> right that's 100% necessary and in fact one of the things that you know the world does is destabilize our ability to even do that to even just self regulate so if you understand ego not as like a bad word like used as a bludgeon by you know spirituality enthusiasts like ego is like evil no but you think of ego as the Necessary function of the psyche to kind of like self organize and maintain some sense of control over the world, right? Everyone needs an ego. And one way to think about the post tragic is actually that you can re solidify normal ego functioning in the context of total utter tragedy. Like right? that's what it means. And normal ego functioning includes a sense of like. You know, have an in, in integrity of identity and like there are things that I do control, humor, love, and all those things become possible when you have a well-integrated ego. What tragedy does is destroy the capacity to think you're somebody. Like it, it, you, your whole, and again, there's that sense, like how can I possibly just go along with my day when there is <laughs> when there's so much tragedy, right? When I am myself in, in it, how do I you know, make a cup of tea? And just like enjoy and enjoy it, right? Like the ability to just feel in control of the ability to get simple pleasure, right? From just base reality. Uh, again, humor an interesting example of this important sign of like ego integrity, the sign of the ability to transcend circumstances. Humor, um, and uh, and so yeah, so that. Is the challenge put to us by these situations that are inexorably tragic and deepening of tragedy, uh, is to uh, is to maintain simple sanity, again, in the face of it, which is like a refuge, usually for people around around you. And uh, and so in that sense, it's a it's similar to what coaches would have always done, right, which is to get that. You get to get that ego secure and then to have it actually advance, like to, uh, you know, to accomplish, right. To grow and be more skillful and more capacitated and efficient and all that stuff it is wonderful. Um, uh, but in this case, often we're just being asked to find a way to metabolize uh, tragedy and complexity and kind of like, grow into that demand without without our without becoming completely destabilized right Um, like there's a way to to destabilize yourself against tragedy by ignoring tragedy that's the pre-tragic where actually you get advice on how to like spiritually bypass it you know Mm -hmm. oh all those people suffering it's their karma to suffer you don't actually really need to be empathetically involved with them if they had done different things in their past lives they would have you know blah 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 um, or it's their fault because they just didn't work hard enough to get out of the situation they were in, right? Um, and, and so those kinds of narratives that allow you to kind of take away the sting of the reality of the tragedy, uh, and then you maintain your personality. Um, but As I said, the definition of a tragedy is that it, de- it kind of destroys your identity, at least temporarily when you're in it. Um and uh, that's why it's kind of so overwhelming. It has mythic qualities. You're actually holding an experience that's bigger than your identity because you didn't make it. You couldn't control it. It intimately involves who you are, nevertheless. <laughs> uh, and so, so that's a deep thing to deal with. And so for a time when you're in the tragic, and it takes some time. Sometimes the tragedy is happening, and you're pre-tragic for a long time. <laughs> and you don't really look. You can't really look at it. Um, and again, so the right. The first step in grieving cycles is like denial, right? Like you just know oh, it's not really actually happening. It seems really bad, but it's not really. happening. So it actually takes work to get into the tragic and a lot of therapy is often that it's like, no, let's rewind and deal with the tragedy that happened to you all those years ago, which you've talked yourself out of looking at just so you could cope. Right. And, uh, so the facing of the tragic is a huge deal, um, But then you can get stuck in the tragic, stuck in these patterns, re-traumatization through the re-experiencing. And then with other people who are the tragic, just the sharing of tragedy and the hyper salience of all that is tragic, right? Just like overwhelmed by tragedy. And then you can never restabilize your identity. And actually, it feels wrong to return to an ego that has self-esteem and that is competent and that feels good about itself, right? It feels wrong to do that in the face of all this tragedy, right? Um, And so how does one actually return to that humor and love and simple everyday pleasure, not indulgent, hedonistic, hyper-capitalist wealth pleasure, like making a cup of tea and enjoying the fragrance and the flavor and the caffeine, right? Which... And so it's that sense of actually, once we're in the tragic, there's work to do still to get out of it into the post-tragic, but you don't leave the tragedy. It's about living in it in a different way. Um, And that's, that's one of the tasks of our time, because it's precisely now that we need to be most competent, most efficient, (laughs) most assured of our skills in complex situations that require our discernment, right? We need to be our best ourselves now but we're being destroyed by the tragic circumstances which is understandable <laughs> and for a time there's no way to avoid the breakdown that comes from the realization of real tragedy mm-hmm. uh, but eventually there's a there's a turn that can be made in a station that can be entered um, uh, which then allows for a different basis of choice making a different form of efficiency like an And in my specific theorizing, like the capacity for a healthy, ongoing intergenerational transmission of key skills, right? Because that's the main thing (laughs) that needs to be passed on from elder to youth is a sense that the world is, you know, is that you're welcome here, right? You're, You're welcome in the universe, you're welcome in the world, and that we can, continue to exist in a good way (laughs) but if you're stuck in tragedy then you literally pass on to the next generation just the tragic story that they're born into and sorry kid (laughs) like um no redemption here you know uh and it wasn't that there weren't you know tragic structures to all the pre-modern religious narratives there were but there was also redemptive structure (laughs) to the pre-modern religious narratives was juxtaposed it. So we offer now just a tragic world story without the juxtaposition of potential redemption of the human. Uh, And so the post-tragic is able to actually see the tragedy in full, but still hold the redemptive possibility. Uh, That is a naive inevitability, which is a lot of what you see in the pre-tragic. But as an eventuality from right choice,
0: right? Which is a different frame. So that was another mouthful. Well, there's so much in that. You know, I'm thinking of the, you know, the, how the secularization of the modern world has like reduced our possibility for the redemptive. And I'm thinking of like children, you know, like, you know, you said like that we feel welcome in the world and, it feels like we're we're embracing one part of this we're in the tragic yeah you know like children hearing about climate change and like how can we that how can we do that in a way that doesn't leave them feeling you know like completely hopeless about their lives which you're starting to see i think you know it's a concern i have about my daughter and and so i guess i'm curious about what kinds of um I can't remember the phrase you used, but in the post tragic I'm curious about what kinds of things come online that could lead us to feel like there's a sense of redemption. That's not based on naive magical thinking or, or, or just hope alone, but that, that has some galvanizing substance to it. And that perhaps brings online some of these faculties, you know, you talked about before, like just in the moment when, we need our skill and our clarity and our decision-making we're, we're like really ensconced in the tragic where when many of us feel disturbed and overwhelmed and we need to regulate and so I'm just wondering you know what kinds of what kinds of faculties might come online that would allow us perhaps to without making this again like a, a nice story you know of, of like um of hope but Yeah, like to bring in that redemptive piece. And and that's different from like the modernistic, um, you know, self-actualized self, self, which we're saying still has some value to it, but sounds like this has a different flavor to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's many characteristics of the post-tragic. I mean, I like to say that you don't get to the post-tragic these days without going post-secular also. Um, and the post secular is a phrase taken from Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian philosopher. He wrote *The Sources of the Self*, which is probably the best place to go <laughs> if you want to know like what's this modern self we're talking about. It in both his, you know both its dignities and its disasters. But his later work, he gets into the thesis of the post secular society, which is basically you know like we're returning to religion, um, in, in part because of exactly these themes, uh, you know the the themes of self induced species extinction right um, systemic injustice a whole bunch of other things that force us into a way of speaking and I think into a way of speaking especially with the youth that requires a f- kind of imagery uh, and a kind of meaning making possibility uh, resources for which we mostly find in the religions <laughs> uh, and this is where there's all the, the complexity there and I like to quote Habermas who said we need to you know preserve the untapped, Semantic potentials latent in the languages of the great religious traditions, um, because he believes that those were languages specifically suited to protecting the most vulnerable in community. Right. So he's actually saying like we don't completely understand what the religions were offering us. That modernity kind of like kicked religions' ass for a long time and then mistranslated a lot of what it was saying. Like oh, you don't really don't really listen to all that, you know. And Habermas is saying essentially like no, we need to return to those symbols and images, specifically the untapped, the latent semantic potential, which means it's deeper than the surface meaning is this latent, untapped semantic potential of the religious tradition. So it's a post-secular re- reappropriation um, uh, to our times. And that's um, already happening in two forms. You know, One is the regressive return to a kind of fundamentalism which is uh solving these problems <laughs> you know like uh we're faced with profound questions in the face of profound questions we want profound answers we'll take profound answers right now the most sophisticated you know so-called academics intellectuals etc don't have good answers to those profound questions with few exceptions and those people with answers um when post-secular <laughs> uh and so so that's, that's, I think, one thing to think is that you know that you only deepen into a new station of, of insolvent. This is from my psychological work. You only deepen into a new station of insolvent, like moving from the pre-tragic to the tragic to the post-tragic by reformulating the basic images that constitute the root metaphors of yourself. That's a mouthful, right? You move through cognitive yeah, development. You... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You move through stages of cognitive development by gathering all of these concepts and ideas and putting them together in more complex structures, which makes you more capable of dealing with the world and, and social situations through language and action and things of that nature. But in Solman is about the deepening of character structure, personality, and identity. And so the medium there isn't language and cognition. The medium there is image and imagination. And so therefore, when you think about what who am I, what is the personality or you're thinking about someone else, who are they? Um, you could give a behavioral record or whatever, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a sense of self that's articulated through a, a kind of archetypal imagery of a personality. And so this notion of like moving into the tragic from the pre-tragic requires you to imagine yourself as someone else. Right. The, the imaginal image you had for yourself gets shattered. I thought I was this person with this thing that was going to happen to me. And I had like these qualities and I was, you know, had these, um, you know, support systems or whatever. And uh, tragedy occurs, that image you have, right? When you sit back and you just kind of imagine who am I, that you can't do that anymore. You don't know how to do that. <laughs> uh, you need a new image, right? A new story of who you are, Right. Um, And so you find that, and it's one that has these tragic dimensions. And so similarly, when you're looking for the kinds of images uh, and symbols that allow one to metabolize tragedy and to place the self in tragedy without its destruction, right, which also means without its irrelevance, right, without its meaninglessness, right, uh, you can pull those from the religious traditions and from religious Mm traditions practices many of which are about the the reformulating of the basic image of self that's what you know the buddha is trying to tell you He's like your your story you're telling about yourself is not correct it's causing you to suffer (laughs) you know and similarly you know christ and muhammad and all these traditions especially in the mystical dimensions they're they're working in the imaginal realm and they're moving through these archetypal stages in the structures of self-understanding and again stained glass windows and sacred geometry and a whole bunch of other things point towards that this is a dimension of imagery and imagination uh, and archetypal representation not language and cognition and denotative representation right um, so, so that's maybe a little bit more detail than is necessary but that that's what i'm saying so you go post secular and you begin to pull in these images and symbols which are enlivened anew in our time because of what's actually happening. And this is one of the things you find in like research on uh, post-traumatic growth, right? Not post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's opposite, which is someone who goes through a traumatic event and actually becomes a better person as a result of going through the event, post-traumatic growth, it's, it's studied. One of the things that occurs as predictive of that, which is to say like, you know, hundred people go through a tragedy, like 30 of them get post-traumatic growth. What factor predicts that? One is an ability to make basically spiritual meaning out of the traumatic event. Uh, I'm talking like serious trauma. I'm not talking like your dog dies. You know, I'm talking like kidnappings and hurricanes and wars and stuff like that. Uh, and when you read these interviews, you know, the people who tell their stories, right? Cause they're researching and like, what happened to you? You're actually an amazing person. Even though your life was basically completely destroyed two years ago or whatever. And they're just like, they would say things, you know, pretty consistently. Like, you know, I went to church and it never really meant anything to me or, or was interested in whatever spiritual tradition. And then this happened. And all of a sudden these sayings and these symbols from the tradition became like, potent and like i saw the world in terms of that right so like that's literally a description of the refiguring of your imagination because the imagination doesn't happen with your eyes closed you project your imaginal archetypal self onto the world that you perceive that's the real meaning the imaginal is you live in the imaginal that you project and it's a a complex projection of your of yourself and this is depth psychology this is basically you this isn't me (laughs) right Uh, uh, anima in essay, right? Like you live in the soul, which is this imaginal uh, um, identity structure. Um, so the so the point being that the the revivification of religious symbol, symbol and imagery occurs when you are in the tragic. Um, uh, that's kind of mm-hmm. because it's like the world is your illusions are stripped away and you're confront reality. <laughs> And, and all of a sudden, these archetypal patterns appear and echoes from, you know, traditions and religion. And again, these were traditions built to help protect the vulnerable and make sense of a world that was unpredictable, tragic, especially the actual age religions in their best form. And again, when I say religion, if you have an allergy to that, it's like, like double click the footnote where we go into the hole. <laughs> conversation about the pre-modern religions and the complexity and the shadow and the light of each of them the exoteric and the esoteric and so there's a whole thing there so um and the god i'm talking about is not the god you don't believe in um it's something else uh and so that's part of the post-seculars having that conversation like yes totally the religions were terrible patriarchal oppressive all of that stuff happened in those religions and <laughs> They created some of the most beautiful, powerful worldviews and transformative practices and like world-centric, compassionate frameworks like they did, you know, like they didn't always live up to that, but they but they did. So the sense of like, what's the rescuing of that semantic man that we can weave into the images of ourself that allow us to become post-tragic, right? And then we can talk about tragedy to the youth because we ourselves can stand in it. With an identity that that is where you can imagine yourself being in tragedy and not being destroyed somehow, right? Um, which is, you know, again, what the religion—that's what they—that's kind of what immortality means in the religious traditions, right? Like there's a indestructible diamond body of imaginal soul making, which is a ship of death, as the alchemists would say, um, that carries you through the. You know the fire of the tragedy, um, and and again, when it doesn't mean like you fix the tragedy. Actually, not at all. It doesn't mean you solve the problem. One of the things that it characterizes the post-tragic consciousness is the accepting of the unsolved problem, which is the tragedy. All right? Like the tragic is so hung up that this thing happened that it hasn't been solved yet. That's some of like the adding insult to injury that occurs within the tragic and the re-traumatization. Whereas the post tragic gets to this other level of complexity and says there will always be unresolved problems that the universe runs on a dialectical tension that Hera, like heraclitus says that war is the mother of all things all right that there's an unresolvableness that the tragic structure is part of it it's a feature not a bug that the tragic is a feature not a bug that death is a feature not a bug we shouldn't try to solve death like Google Alphabet is trying to do and others, you know, that's, that's insane. That's a pre-tragic or tragic relation to death where you think this is actually a problem that like could be solved and should be solved and that it hasn't been solved. is like an unjust thing, right? It's like, well, actually, no, <laughs> death's a feature. It's, it's not a bug. It's a problem. Yes, in one sense, but in another sense, it's a gift um, because it creates this polarity of life. Uh, so that's part of that higher order self-imagining, which is what the the higher order installment of the post-tragic kind of
0: how that works. Yeah. So much in what you said there. Um, I just think about how the, the because of the, the collapse and the tragic these days, because of the secular world can have this nihilistic sense to it, you know, and, and that there's a tragedy in that, you know, and that I'm hearing you kind of talk about a kind of like re-enchantment of the world. Um, It's just funny when you talked about stained glass windows, I remember being in France one time in this beautiful old medieval church and the sun was shining through the stained glass window. And I, and I, and it, I mean, I just felt what that did to me, you know, it opened me up and it was a moment. Medieval,
1: medieval psychotechnology. Yeah.
0: Exactly, like euphoria and an expanded consciousness, and I walked out of that church in in just a, such a deeper sense of wholeness and, um, you know, gr- gratitude, and and I felt touched by that window. So, and um, I guess I'm curious about the the um, how we might relate to the, you know, you talked about how the, the the world is like this imaginal world, you know, that it's not just imagination and dreams, but it's actually, you know, the the world around us is it, we're swimming in that imaginal, and, and and so I get a sense of like the the, the depth or the, the the poetry, the reenchantment of the world. It's not just this materialistic, you know, um, inert thing, and and I'm curious then how we might orient towards specific this might talk we talk about ensoulment here like what what like my my unique expression might be different than yours you know like there might be different imaginal symbols that, that resonate with me more than you because of who you are and where you are in your life and and, and so i'm just curious if you could speak a little bit about you know, how, like, as you said, in the, in the, in the tragic, we're, we're, we're like, we're being revivified, like symbology is being revivified because of we're in, in relationship to death and death sounds like an educational kind of um, experience in that. and, you know, it's an important part of education um and and so but like what what is that path you know is the path that we're we're like and again you know i'm careful not to like appropriate you know things like the word of a path and um you know like try and, try and like prematurely like claim some kind of um end goal where there's a perfected sense of self but i'm just curious if there's like a um you know what what we might orient to in that place like yeah you know, are we are we like looking for or are we are we like is the work to like open and attune to like what like lyrics touches what 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 movie characters touches or uh, you know um ancient myths and spiritual characters or you know and and there's something about that that it's speaking to something in us that one is wanting to be enlivened and 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 expressed in the world and that that is part of that move into the post tragic that in some sense we're able to encapsulate things in our own in our own living myth or something
1: yeah yeah that's well said at the end there yeah that the anima mundi right which is the stained glass window (laughs) and you know the faces on the street the anima mundi is there and it's real and i'm not saying i'm not an idealist saying we project the world we live in a world we are real in a world of realities but many of those realities are imaginal Um, that the stained glass window would have that effect on you is an imaginal truth. Um, uh, And so there's like a pre-trans issue here. So if you're a fan of like Ken Wilber's work, you know, whenever you have a set of like stages or stations, the pre-tragic and the post-tragic sometimes can be confused, right? Because in the pre-tragic structure, you're like, getting signs of the universe like in a kind of narcissistic way that things are working out for you. Right. Like the pre-tragic notion of kind of like synchronicity um, and kind of like the, you know, I forget it was, but like, you know, basically you think about something and you'll kind of make it happen. Like those naive new age notions are, are pre-tragic, right. That the world's trying to tell you something. And then the tragedy you are kind of in one way confronting the world and the world is telling you quite a bit. Um, uh, and so that naive notion that everything's going to work out and that it's being woven together just for me. And, you know, like when I call in something to the universe, it will appear in front of me and I will have manifested, you know, my future self, like through willpower and spiritual you know, prowess. In the tragic, that idea makes no sense. In the tragic, like actually, the universe is kind of maybe conspiring against you (laughs) and maybe all of us, you know? Um, uh, And so, one of the things that the post tragic does, which is again confusing to people in the tragedy, like in the tragic, because they confuse it with the pre tragic, is that in the post tragic, um, the anima mundi uh, becomes more transparent, uh, which is to say, you become more aware that you are projecting your imaginal field onto the world. Um, and so therefore more synchronicities begin to occur. Um, uh, and the reading of the signs left by the agency of the, anima, of the anima mundi.
0: You say what you mean by anima mundi as well? just for,
1: So this yeah. is the soul of the world, right? So this is another way of saying like, the collective unconscious but imagining it not as something that resides in the invisible consciousness but actually as that's the collective unconscious is woven through it lives in the stained glass window let's put it that way right like it lives in that dude in the sports car driving down the street like that was just an archetypal expression that just went by now if you can see it catch your own projection of like the power and arrows that this guy is trying to get from the sports car you know see that to all the other like pseudo-immortality projects that like character you know it's like you can just start to read the kind of book of imagery of the world in a way that deepens the world into myth and therefore out of a meaningless tragedy and into a meaningful tragedy which is what a myth is Um, and so that sense of you have a deepening one's perception of one's kind of like being woven into the world which is another way of undermining that sense of like, I'm transforming my own soul that the ensoulment process is Zach getting deeper and deeper and everyone else getting left behind. And like now Zach's the most like in dude, you know, like actually, no, the insolvent process is a deepening of the anima mundi. It's the, it's the finding one's continuity and discontinuity with this flow of, you know, value and reality and archetype that you can participate in. And so again, with the religious traditions, the, the language can be interpreted at the pre-tragic level <laughs> you know that uh, you know you can't understand how God works and but something is being worked out right you can understand it at the pre-tragic level basically telling you it's going to be great for Zach <laughs> uh, and at the tragic level that makes no sense and you don't want to hear that shit right that God's working at all that and I don't understand how it works come on <laughs> like you're seeing all these people dying completely unnecessarily you can totally unjust system like God's not working it out right so the tragedy just denies that Again, the post-tragic um, uh, reconfigures that self, where that makes sense again, but in a different, in a different way, uh, and yeah. So, therefore, the uh, yeah that like you were saying, the revivification, like a, the, a new aliveness in the world, uh, uh, but not one that is um, not one that feels safe and controllable. Right, because another one that appears true at the post-tragic is that the in the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, right? (laughs) Which is to say, you realize that the messages you're receiving aren't necessarily telling it's all going to work out for Zach. In fact, they're precisely showing you how it's not. You're going to die. Your loved ones are going to die, and the situation is going to become more intense. Right? All the plans you thought you were going to have will not work out, Um, and yet it's telling you something else about the anima mundi it's telling you that your energies are woven into it, right? Um, and therefore that there's a kind of assurance of a form of continuity and immortality. And that sounds nuts, but this is like Robert J. Lifton, who I've spoken about before a lot, The a psychiatrist who worked with survivors of Hiroshima and did a whole bunch of interesting work on uh, the kind of state of the modern psyche under the shadow of existential risk. Um, And one of the things he said it did to us was that it destroyed our sense of symbolic immortality that prior humans always had a sense of like, I live in this tribe or this culture or this religion and who I am matters enough. And the ontology works in such a way that I feel like my life will contribute to some flow of ongoing life, whether it's my ancestors and legacy or it's reincarnation or whatever it is. But the idea that we could actually self-induce our own species extinction and, pro- and maybe even end all life on Earth, period, with a large enough nuclear catastrophe, which is what dawned on us in the 50s, Lifton said, this is undermining our sense of immortality. It's throwing us into a state that humans never experienced before, um, which is the, which is an utter, kind of an utter desolation. Uh, and uh, So yeah, so the post tragic resolves that it re-enters the psyche into the, into the larger flow of transpersonal, immortal personality. Uh, and,
0: uh, yeah. Do you think that, you know, in some, in some um, places when you read about soul, there's this idea of like, um, you know, that there's something you're here to be uniquely uh, maybe even James Hillman wrote about this and um you know that's different from others and that that's you know contrasting that from like spiritual the spiritual kind of domain which might be like our how each of us is part of the, of the same seamless whole, you know that actually soul work is um you know leading towards a kind of like you know full expression of your your uniqueness and I say you're in um Invert commas with everything we're talking about. It's not the yore that we think in the pre-tragic. But I'm just, just curious, like where you land on that. Like if you do feel like as we move into the pre-tragic, there might be also like a flourishing of, of kind of like creative expression or collaboration and 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 love and humanity and in some way, not as like a kind of idealistic fairy tale, but but one that includes the tragic. And it's actually, in, in you know, enhanced or informed by it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I Hillman's, yeah, The Soul's Code touches on this. And then, you know, I work closely with Mark Gaffney. His work on the unique self expresses this uh, very mm-hmm. precisely. And that notion of ensoulment is a notion of, you know, uniqueification, if I can say that. That's what's so, like, important to get. It's not transcendence, right? Which is another aspect of my, metapsychology transcendence is about universalization transcendence is about the experience of like i, I amness, right or the joke that makes everybody laugh <laughs> right it's a it's a universal ability to transform that actually relieves you of a sense of you know uh uniqueness because with uniqueness comes obligation with uniqueness comes being a particular character in a particular array of other personalities and that personality field has a system of obligation and a system of like, of eros and connection and intelligence, right? So it's like to, to be deepened in insolvent is to become more unique and therefore more enmeshed in a unique set of obligations. <laughs> uh, whereas transcendence says, no, you are, you are every human that has ever been right. And Solman says you are this specific guy <laughs> in, in this very, very specific situation. You go down and in, as opposed to up and out, And so it is very much this process of uniqueification. And as you move into the tragic from the pre-tragic, you become more unique. It's one of the things that a tragedy does, it actually throws you back into yourself and you take it all extremely personally because it's like destroying you, literally. Um, And so there's a deepening of, there's a deepening in that of uniqueness, of awareness of self and like positionality. and similarly with the post-tragic, there's an, ex- there's an expansion of identity and a relocation of identity uh, with, with more uniqueness. And so this is like, for the like Jungian nerds out there, there's an actually important distinction between symbol and image, right? Where the symbol belongs in the transcendent, the symbol is the universal. The image belongs in ensoulment and is the unique in particular. Right. So, if you to just clarify, because it's actually a key distinction when you're working with, it, like in the archetypal conversation, if you have a dream and you go up to your bedroom in this dream and it happens to be a cross on the wall in your room and you kneel down, right? And then your mom calls you down for breakfast. So, that's your dream, right? That's an image. Right? That is completely particular to you because it's your bedroom, it's your mom. Right? There's a cross on your wall, which usually isn't there because your wall doesn't have a cross completely. And you can work that over in a way where you're actually working your personal narrative about that. Like, it was, why would my mom call me down to breakfast? She never did that, but i always wish she made me breakfast. i like, so you deepen the like sense of uniqueness of what it was like to be in your room and ret- to return to that room with reverence and to, for the a cross or whatever. Right? So image work, insolvent work, deepening. But you can note in that dream, there were symbols. Right, the cross, the kneeling, the mother. So, you could make that dream actually get you out of your story and be like, look, man, your story has these universal elements, right? Mother, everyone had a mother who they wish cooked them breakfast, you know, except the ones who had mothers that cooked them breakfast and then they wish they did something else, (laughs) right? So, it's like the mother archetype. You could talk about just that, and it would actually get you out of your uniqueness into your universal. So both of those are, are key and you don't get uniqueness without universality, they're related. Um, uh, and, and so that's every image will be unique to you and have universal symbols within it. And so it's very important when you're working with people and, they, and you're working the, with imagery to be able to tease those apart and not think that locating someone in a universal archetype is in Solomon, it's transcendence. And Solomon is showing the way that they're actually embodying that archetype in their unique, like material, relational form, All right? And then Solomon yeah. grapples with the, mul- the multiplicity of archetype within self uh, and the tensions between them, uh, which is to say, it's like a, uh, it's always intention. And Solomon is always intention transcendence is always to, like in relief of tension or something like that <laughs> uh, yeah. and so again this is a little bit like more for people who are already aware of my model which works with development and soul and, and transcendence as the three broadest categories of human psyche
0: i'm curious like uh, it's a really powerful distinction and i'm curious how you might one might kind of skillfully work with image and symbol and know which one perhaps to orient to. I'm just thinking of, you know, um, an image I had once of, um, it was kind of an imaginal image in a sense of like, it, it came to me of, um, me with my Star Wars figures when I was a child And, and, and this particular moment I would, I would get to with my Star Wars figures each time I played, and, and it was like I would you know I wouldn't be like you know fighting them all it was like I was carefully positioning them and and there was this like sense of something could emerge and as I reflected that to to somebody they were like oh that that does speak to me about my sense of you like this that container you know like creating a container and I it, it again it just that was like whoa that I could feel that something dropped inside of me and just kind of made sense you know and and it's like something came online more fully with that reflection back and so that speaks to me of of image work in a sense and um and I'm curious like yeah how, how we might um relate to image work but also know when when to turn to which you know like that we don't kind of disturb someone's beautiful image work by relating to it only as symbols like as you're referring or yeah. or when we might need to turn to the, the symbolic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know,
1: any rich production of the active in imagination, right? So a, a dream is one, but meditation, daydream, and you get the image, right? Um, always both are in play and often you just have to learn from the image, the image is primal. So you always start with image. Like you have to recount the image even to extract the the symbol from it, right? So you're gonna have to do both in some way because you have to know what the image is like. Um, But you have to work the image and learn from the image of what it's trying. Some images are obviously just symbolic. Like there's very little personal content really. And there's just this like one radiating symbol. (laughs) Like that happens. (laughs) People just have like an image of the cross. Like nothing unique about it, really. It's just just the transmission of transcendent Christ. That's what you're supposed to get. But then other times, like I said, it's a cross on a wall in your room in this like richly textured imaginal landscape, and then you just have to literally push the image around. Like what? Like explain to me again. Like re say that. Like um, and get the image to actually be like teach you about. Yourself,
0: yeah, like receptivity towards the image, not not yeah. like uh, I'm going to analyze the image with my mind and work it out, but like,
1: yeah, this is Hillman's work on image, and uh, it's really powerful. And he's basically saying like, you don't want to dissect it, and then like have analyzed it and put a period on it. You actually want to just find a way to keep to keep retelling the image. So like the one I brought, you know, like when I'm in my room and there's a cross on the wall, I kneel and my mom calls me for breakfast, right? But you could also say something like, when there's a cross in my room and my mom calls me for breakfast, I'm kneeling. Right? Like it's simple, but you know, you're like, it's like looking at a piece of art from a bunch of different directions. So you want to re-articulate it and then deepen, you know? And then of course, all the associative work, you know? Like, oh, what happened in my room? Like, were there other times that I kneeled in my room? like those kinds of things, which deepen the, deepen the imaginal work. And then that feels sometimes enough. And then sometimes it's clear that there's more that can be brought up that the dream is calling for a transcendent kind of resolution of that complex, if you will. Um, But there's no way you don't want to prematurely transcendently resolve a complex or actually want the complex to like work for a while, so you can see it because it's part of you. It's part of your personality, um, uh, and so that that's kind of a little bit of an that's a little bit of an answer. My tendency is most people move to, very quickly to symbol and just extract the symbol and then feel like that's what the dream was offering them. But it was offering them more. It was offering them the ability to learn just from the image itself, not from the archetype of symbol in it, but just what your imagination was showing you. Like this is the, this is the imaginal field. Um, And then similarly for daydreams and, and other things, you know, like if you do mindfulness practice, you see where, what your mind, you see what your mind is trying to do (laughs) and get away with. Uh, And that teaches you a lot. And sometimes it's trying to show you um, the universal. And sometimes it's trying to show you this, completely immeasurably unique thing right that's what's so remarkable it's like there's an aesthetic to the universal symbol right which we associate with beautiful religious symmetry but then there's also an aesthetic to the completely unique and non-replicatable like this tree branch in this sunlight (laughs) right on this day Right. So there's that. And again, this is an unresolvable tension between the universal and the unique, right? Between what's the same in the universe and what's completely different and that they're completely related to one another and yet completely always in tension. <laughs> uh, even as an energy, you can feel in yourself. Like you want to be more unique and yet you're also completely indebted to the culture that you live in. So you, and there's a part of you who wants to be more like the things that you admire in other people, right? So there's this... Drawing together of sameness and uniqueness—that is key, and you don't want to resolve
0: that. You want that tension mm-hmm. to remain. To, to, so to, to be able to like li, li, be lived by that tension in a sense, because mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, as you reflect that back to me, I, I can think in my own life of periods where I did a lot of transcendent practice and got a lot from that, but then you know entered into Periods where life felt a bit dry, or you know, um, perhaps a little bit too crystalline, and you know, um, it, it, uh, what's the word like? You, you know, spacious mountain crystalline feel, and and that there was something that became a bit dry about that, and then and then came in more of the like um, the, the, the the perhaps the insolvent work, which felt like more messy and and but juicy and, and less controlled in some sense and so i hear you you're saying that we want to be like anyway like lived by that by that tension in some sense never to try are you saying that to try to resolve it as a problem to be solved but there's some beauty in in being lived by that tension
1: yeah well and and there's also the third which is development which is the complexification right. of your cognition and language and capacities, you know, um, and perspective taking and all of that stuff. Um, so all of those three are co-evolving in the psyche. And if you neglect, if you over-focus on one, then you need to just compensate eventually in the others. And this is again, one of the risks of over-intellectualism is that you neglect transcendence and ensoulment right? One of the risks of meditation is that you neglect insolvent and development, uh, <laughs> So there's that risk of um, instead of getting a generative tension between those, kind of trying to resolve that tension and just deciding that one of them is the most important, right? Um, That actually know my ability to have like unwavering quality of awareness and attention uh, is more important than my ability to like be really articulate and smart and know a lot of how to like act in the world and, and move things around and... Uh, which is what development is right like maybe that's true. but if you do that then you have to know you're, you're not going to become developed as a result of doing that. <laughs> and so you're gonna have this you're going to have this total awareness and then come to the world and maybe that will help you learn what you need to learn but you will eventually need to develop. Um, and similarly with the soulman's Solman, the one that usually slips through the cracks right because most say, like because yeah, most consulting and our schooling and jobs and everything require, a certain form of development, which is just like, you know, what we call hierarchical complexity, like capacity of cognition. Um, uh, and so it's often the case that uh, we wanna get out of that. We wanna get out of being instrumentalized by this system that demands us to develop in a particular way. And so we think we're gonna do that by doing all these transcendent practices. Um, uh, but the sleeping third, is insolman, which is actually asking a deeper question than either of those, because it's primary. Insolman's primary image is primary. Uh, the deeper question is who, like who are you? What's that? What's the actual root metaphor of self? The root image of the story you're telling about yourself, um, and uh, and that's important, right? It's important to resolve, and you can't resolve it by picking one of those because the story has to include three. So, insolment is the thing that draws us back to wholeness. It rebalances the disequilibriums often organically by creating crises that occur as a result of being too transcendent, <laughs> right? Or being too intellectual. Insolment's got to correct and it's going to hurt, you know? Um, and that's uh, just... It's kind of how it works. <laughs> and now if you get hip to that and then you just focus on installment and all you do is like shadow work and circling and union therapy and that kind of stuff. Then um, the other two will come back to bite you, but that's a, less, that's a less typical pattern. I mean, it happens in some places like California probably, but it's a less typical pattern than you typically get, which is either a focus on transcendence, you know, through symbol and meditation and drugs and other things that give you spiritual experiences and that kind of stuff combined with some kind of focus on like efficiency and optimization and cognitive complexity and like problem solving and like that kind of stuff. Uh, Mm. uh, And that's like a dangerous combination in the absence of a soul, because you're going to be unwinding unconsciously all of these images of yourself that you're going to be maybe not wanting to look at Um, because that's the ethical compass doesn't come from the transcendent uh, or the, development uh it comes from insulment it comes from living in fidelity to the actual image of what you are and what you have become which is a tall task if you've built a ton of capacity in these other branches and went really far somewhere <laughs> and then all of a sudden you get into your 50s or whatever and these images start cascading down into your consciousness that locate your soul in the imaginal realm for the first time right? and then you wake up uh, with a position in the domain of ensoulment And you're just, you are where you are. This is like kind of cryptic, but it, it speaks to an emotional experience. I've seen people go through an experience in my own time, like that there's always this cycle between these three. And so any deep intellectual work or deep transcendence work or deep insolment work is going to be answered by the other dimensions. Um, uh, and again, like uh, people can be thrown off balance by experiences like profound profound meditation experiences or profound profound you know visionary drug experiences that can't be integrated into the other and given the position of their other capacities right um so yeah so i guess some of what i'm saying here and some of the focus of my metapsychology in general is uh you know just trying to get people to pay attention to the, you know These discrete domains, and that you can advance in them independently of one another. But ideally, you should be thinking about weaving all three together. Um,
0: so, but you know, it's um, that's just my opinion. <laughs> well, it's an opinion I like, and you know, resonates with me, and particularly that it does feel, at least in my circles, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on development and the transcendent and less on ensoulment seems like that got a particularly hard time in the uh, modernist worldview, you know, where we want to kind of everything has to be explainable and yeah, mindfulness is cool because we can see neurological correlates, you know, so we can accept that. But something like the word soul is, you know, in a reductionist world, it's like immediately thrown out as, not being something worthy of explanation but then we've lost this enchantment of the world and um i guess like you're answering perhaps you're answering my question in a way now of like what might be the transformational work in these times you know which is like yeah you're at least advocating for this these three streams and that each of them are really important and that we can actually that they can be in tension with one another, but we can actually, cause my question now is like, maybe this comes back to like, you know, coaches listening, what we can do, but, um, how it's like, okay. So you mentioned like circling as a practice, you know, as a, as an installment practice and possibly, um, yeah. possibly. Yeah. I, and I, I'm just wondering is like, are there other are practices which might, might train all three at once, you know, or is it, is it more like we want to, you know, use the the best practices of each, and and that they can inform one another? I'm guessing like is there a is there a self which encapsulates all all three of those domains? You know, because like the transcendent domain, they would say like they might have one version of what the self is. You know, there is no self. Self is you. You know, everything is this I amness and therefore they're refuting all these images that that show up as being distractions you know so so i guess i'm weaving in a few questions here and i'll just see where you take it because and then just the thing i want to say about circling which is like oh it's cool because I, I know that practice and in one way it is i think training a kind of like interpersonal meditative mindfulness of like phenomenological experience and and yet it's also perhaps like inviting you to, to be in relationship to who you are in relationship with others and the perspectives you can take. And, um, and then, yeah, I actually hadn't thought of it around installment, but I'd be curious what you say about that. But I wonder if these there are these practices which span more than one at once. Yeah. Anyway, I said a lot there. I don't want to keep quiet. Yeah, no, I mean, that's one of the functions of the
1: metapsychological work I do is to provide a taxonomy of psychological tech, you know, psychological technologies or, or practices, whatever you want to call them. And so you know, generally speaking, there's a class of practices, techniques, pedagogical approaches that were pioneered by the developmentalists, you know, So constructivist education being the one that most people know. And then kind of updating that through more contemporary work and adult development, you get all of these approaches. Like a class, and are just moving people up through vertical stages of development. So that's like a whole class there. And you can think of the academy trying to do that too. Like schools mostly are trying to focus on that dimension. They're trying to focus on development. You know, getting this person richer language, mathematical capacity, like facility with the world and with human relationships, and like that kind of stuff. So that we kind of know how that works. Now, there's better and worse ways to do that when you're thinking about development. And incidentally, like, learning any new capacity, like learning to meditate, learning to do circling, there's going to be some development in there. So these things can't be completely separated. It's about which one is primary, right? So there's those set of practices. Um, And then, as you've mentioned, there's practices that are obviously in this category, the transcendent meditation, you know, kind of like is the most obvious one, Uh, but you have contemplative prayer, like, ecstatic dance like jogging like there's a whole bunch of stuff that if you look at my technical definition of transcendence could be could be placed there um including some collective practices that create collective state experiences right um so like going to a music concert or sporting event um will often allow for things that should be understood in terms of transcendence Um, but again, all three are always involved. So then there's a, but, but again, this is mostly about like, you know, the way your awareness and consciousness is altered and, the you know, repositioning of your like most basic like locus of awareness. Like that's what the transcendent does. Uh, and then again, with ensoulment, there's practices there. This is mostly where you put like depth psychology, like classically speaking, like deep. Psychotherapeutic work in the Jungian or Freudian or Lacanian traditions. You're you're doing insoulation, and then more contemporary work with like Gestalt psychology and counter groups, uh, circling, dream work. Like this is all in the insolvent domain. Uh, but it's important to note that like these things are going to be happening whether you ever take on some kind of formal practice or not, because this is how the psyche goes. So whether you go to school or not, you're going to go through developmental capacitation in whatever, whatever you do. Right. And whether you ever meditate or not, you are going to learn to be aware of transcendence as a modality of your consciousness, even if it's just the runner's high or the ability to just like, you know, depersonalize your way out of a stressful situation and just like hold your attention still, which, which is like an adaptive capacity, whether you're a meditator or not. Um, and likewise, insoulment just happens, <laughs> like dreams occur and relationships. You know, go. You know, relationships have the tensions and archetypal structures that they do that shape your personality. And if you don't like the word soul, you can actually use personality, which is also a complex scientific property because we value personalities more than we value brains. Right? Brains a physical object. Personality is not a physical object. Right. <laughs> uh, and so that the deepening of personality is just going to occur, but there are practices that facilitate the deepening of character, the clarification of self and, and personality. And so those. So then you can imagine, in some sense, the pre-modern religions didn't differentiate these and kind of solve the, the whole the whole problem at once, like with monastics and churches and, and the feudal system kind of like stuff. Um, and uh, modernity in a sense separated these. Uh, in terms of the way we understood ourselves, um, and now one of our tasks is actually to, to find a way to re to reintegrate, um, and uh, that's important because these are again these are basic modalities of interaction and learning, like personal evolution, and so to have them housed in fundamentally different institutions, and to have those institutions like look skeptically at one another right? because it's not just like okay there's the academy that kind of does development and then there's like the spiritual scene that does uh transcendence and you're like oh, how do they view one another right well the academy is like super skeptical of the spiritual scene and the, spirit, and the spiritual scene is super skeptical of the academic scene because you guys are overthinking it all right because you're not enlightened or whatever um And then psychoanalytical stuff never even got culturally really that accepted, especially in the United States. In Europe, it's a little bit different. But again, there, what you went to is mostly uh, certain forms of eventually, you know, HMO kind of health plan run cognitive behavioral therapy that can be bucketed like a basic medical intervention, which is not what psychotherapy was ever intended to be. It was intended to be a long, drawn out process of relationally catalyzed installment or deepening and maturing of personality. Right. Um, that like, that's, that's the one as you're pointing out that was the least welcome in modernity basically because modernity is great with you being like a really efficient, well-developed, emotionally self-regulating worker. It's not comfortable with you having like an unconscious that's going to cause problems with your relationships and your work. Um, and, uh, you know, and again, it's like, you know, imagery that spontaneously occurs in dreams um, is frightening sometimes, glorious sometimes, right? Sexual, violent, um, unrealistic, chaotic. Like you want to invite that in to like this well, like oiled machine that modernity is trying to build where there's like no room for error (laughs) (laughs) and everything's super fragile. And you want to bring in like, this dude's crazy dream is like a valid source of information about how he should shape his personality. It's like, no, well, it seems a little bit like a bad idea. Like let's keep insolent out of the academy, out of the boardroom, you know, and let's preference those modes of transcendence that actually kind of grease the wheels of this machine, right? allow us to just deal with the fact that it's bullshit Well, at least I can control my attention and not get so upset about the bullshit, which is important. <laughs> right. But insolvent <laughs> won't not allow that installment will overwhelm you with images of the injustice and the potential justice, right? It will give you that and change your personality. Um, So that's a little bit of kind of that. And so that, yeah, ideally you get practices that allow all three to occur. So I see it less as like one practice that does all three and more of like rhythms of practices um, and like cycles of practice. And I believe that there's a kind of a natural rhythm that goes from insolment to development to transcendence to ensoulment to development to transcendence and like that. I think that's a, it's one of the loops that was discovered early in psychology that there's a kind of emotional personality motivation which enables learning. And then a the learning is crystallized by like an aha moment where it becomes part of you and you transcend the prior you and become the new you that knows that. And then that gives a new image of who you are and a new motivation. And then that pursues learning. And then the learning gives you the aha moment and you transcend and become someone new and then back. So there's a cycle there. So, which means that if you're working with someone who's been meditating for a long time, the next step is the not development. If you're working with someone who's just been doing shadow work for a long time, And trying to get deeper and more ensouled, you actually need to get them into intellectual clarity before you bring them to symbol and transcendent awareness. And then if you're working with someone who's over-intellectual, you need to find a way to shut their mind up before you can introduce the imagery of the new ensoulment, which is to say you move to transcendent before ensoulment. So there's like a cycle there. And again, my metapsychology is built on basic metaphysics, like... Landry's Imminent Metaphysics or Charles Sanders Peirce's Metaphysics, which work with these foundational ontological triples that have basic metaphysical relationships, similar to like Wilbur's four quadrants. So, and again, but it's reflected in basic psychological theorizing. And again, it's like you're teaching a kid mathematics. Where do you start? Do you start with drilling and killing him on the numbers? No, that's starting with development. You actually start with like, Hey kid, who are you? Okay, cool. Here's why you need to learn mathematics. Let's like weave you, let's like build an image in your mind of like you as learning mathematics. Like you have an image of a future self, knowing mathematics, and you want that. Like you're working on the motivation. Who are you? Why do you care about mathematics? Like we never start that way. <laughs> we go right to the mathematics. But the good teachers know that if you don't hook them with their personality and their identity, um, and you should actually literally paint them an image of like here's you knowing mathematics. <laughs> uh, then they're like, awesome. <laughs> uh, you're never going to get them to work that that hard. They'll have extrinsic motivations and they'll, they'll try, but they won't be learning at nearly the rate and intensity that they could if you could make it part of their soul's vision of itself, right? Uh, and then if you move right from mathematics to something else and then to something else and you don't let them transcendently cohere, right? which is to say, have the aha moment. That I am the transformed person with a new skill, right? And like, vision's changed, um, awareness is altered for a few moments from the thrill of the learning, right? And you're like, look at yourself anew. You have to allow the integration of learning, um, and then the reimagining of self. So that cycle is pretty fundamental, um, and it has that power of like, deep. Each one deepens the next um, in that in that way. Um, so, uh,
0: yeah, I really appreciate that, actually. Um, well, I, I'm aware of time and, um, yeah, I'm really grateful for our conversation today. You know, I'm going to, I can feel actually the, the I don't know, how I could put this, but like, you know, as you, as, as you talked about the imaginal and um, an image, you know, almost the felt sense of that as it showed up in our conversation. And that it's not just some abstract idea that we're talking about, but it's an em- embodied, you know, experience that that that's that's here and available to us. And so um and and just you know, I, I'm coming back to like the wow, if we could have an education system for children, which would, as you described, like work this cycle and include these three pillars of development, you know, that that would be such a good thing for the world and, and the necessity for soul work you know like as being something that's been underemphasized as we've yeah as we want to explain things away too much and I think it gets lost and so yeah I just I just am expressing my, my gratitude to you for for sharing everything you've done today and and um immersing yourself in this work. So yeah I'm really really pleased to be able to share it. Yeah, thank you. It
1: was a pleasure. The time really went by. It was it just, we got going there. So thank you. And uh, yeah, we're just, it's just really the tip of the iceberg. You know, those three aspects of psyche are foundational and there's yeah a lot to say about education, how it could be reconfigured and, and other, other things as well. Uh, and it's the root, I think, in many ways of the, of the meta crisis, if you will, you know, like it's, it's basically a crisis of the psyche, before it's a crisis of technology and infrastructures and all that stuff so those people working on the psyche as psyche with psyche <laughs> uh, coaches psychologists intellectuals it's like they seem far away from like carbon recapture and like you know ai weaponization and all that stuff And in some sense they are but in another sense the changes in culture and superstructure and psyche are a precondition for us getting out of this so i'm just also nodding my head at you and your listeners that this work is is key and we need to have a new image of what we're doing uh, in terms of like revalorizing the inner work which is i think one of the things you were getting at with questioning you know the importance of personal transformation so so onward and upward and thank you for the uh, for the time as well
0: just a heads up again if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about